Welcome back to another bonus episode of the plant based DFW podcast. Today's bonus episode will include four of my favorite doctors in Texas. I am being a bit biased since I consider them dear friends and I'm married to one of them. So this is a recap episode of my previous conversations with each of them. You will hear commonalities that they share as physicians. They all initially lack formal training in nutrition. When they learned about the power of the plant-based foods, they not only adopted the diet for themselves, but they also began to teach their patients that plant based foods can prevent, halt, and even in some cases reverse disease. They are all now trained in lifestyle medicine and are board certified by the American Board of Lifestyle Medicine. Finally, all four were guest speakers on the Virtual Food as Medicine Summit. To hear the full episodes with each of the doctors, click on the links provided in the show notes. Okay, so let's start with Drs. Munish and Bandana Chawla from Houston, Texas. Dr. Bandana Chawla is a board-certified physician in internal medicine and lifestyle medicine. She has been practicing as an internist in the Houston area for over 20 years. And over the years, she has incorporated the tenets of lifestyle medicine into her practice and has seen her patients lose weight, improve their diabetes, and several other health conditions. Dr. Munish Chawla is a board-certified physician in diagnostic radiology and lifestyle medicine. A longtime practitioner of meditation and yoga, he adopted a plant-based lifestyle in 2013. Upon becoming aware of the research-proven health benefits and the evidence-based approach lifestyle medicine uses to treat and reverse chronic diseases, he became certified in this new and exciting specialty. Doctors Munish and Bandana Chawla created their lifestyle medicine docs practice, which focuses on eating the right foods, being fit, reducing stress, and connecting more to achieve holistic wellness. They also founded the Peaceful Planet Foundation 501c3 nonprofit, which fosters peace, health, and wellness in Houston and the surrounding communities. Let's hear from the doctors. Tell us a little bit about your center. So we just moved in here. It's been over a month now. We moved here because I've been practicing traditional um, internal medicine for a while, about 20 years. And more and more, I've been talking to patients about lifestyle medicine as well, making some goals and plans for the pillars of lifestyle medicine, which is, of course, nutrition, exercise, stress management, sleep avoidance of risky behaviors like alcohol and um, tobacco and drug use and um, healthy relationships. What I was realizing is many of my patients were starting to say that, Doc, I get the why, it's the how that's Mm -hmm. really hard. So then we basically said, okay, we need to help them with the how then. And that's why this lifestyle medicine clinic came into being. And you want to tell what the lifestyle medicine clinic has? Sure. So I'll give you a little bit of my background. I'm a board-certified radiologist and have been practicing radiology for over 20 years. But, you know, we take walks in the evening. And she would be telling me all these patients that, you know, she's switched over to a plant-based diet. They're, you know, getting rid of their diabetes medicine. They're, you know, doing so much better losing weight without even trying. And I'm, you know, getting encouraged. So I said, you know, I want to be part of this uh, movement also. So we were both kind of studying for lifestyle medicine uh, board exams. Actually, she started studying, and I'm reading the material too because I'm interested in it. So I said, you know, I can do this. So we had no plans of doing anything at this point. So I was going to take the uh, lifestyle medicine board examination. If you're an MD or PhD or nutrition or dietitian, you can get the added certification. 
So once we got the certification, like, like now what do we do? So Vandana's, you know, wants to move further. She's got her uh, medical clinic. She's got interested patients who get the reason, you know, why do we need to, you know, change our diet, change our lifestyle, incorporate other healthful behaviors. But they're having trouble with how to get there. Mm -hmm. So this is when we kind of start talking about the new clinic. And so, long story short, I am transitioning out of radiology, and I'll be in the new space with her doing this lifestyle clinic. And in our space, uh, we have a wonderful area. It's a small space where we can do yoga classes, meditation classes, screenings for movies. We have a small kitchen. We can do cooking demos, uh, group potlucks, group discussion, you know, group support sessions. So we wanted to create the space to have really a community come and learn from each other, and we provide some tools and guidance. Mm -hmm. So everybody grows in this, you know, healthful, you know, wonderful, you know, behavior that everybody gets healthy together. Mm -hmm. So you might say then that uh, the the way you design the clinic is it's it's able to address the lifestyle medicine concepts more fully than a traditional internal medicine practice. Absolutely. One, it provides the community because it really does help to have other people who are on the same path with us. really helps to see other patients who are also trying to eat this way, who are also trying to improve their health. One of my patients said it really helps to have people who are ahead of us on this path that we can look up to. Yeah, for guidance. And sure. also mm -hmm. helps to have people behind us who are looking up to us, who we are trying to, so we try to do better because we know they're looking up to mm -hmm. us, right? Mm -hmm. So we are not, we're trying not to let them down. It keeps us accountable. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. So forming that community is something that we really want in Lifestyle a Medicine Clinic. And the other thing, like I said, is the how. Mm -hmm. The how that's so hard for people. So now they can come to cooking classes and learn the how of cooking and how to make these healthy foods themselves because so many people in the society have actually never cooked. They've always picked up fast food and eaten out. Um, now they can learn the how of meditation, the how of yoga, and, and all of that stuff. Wonderful, wonderful. I understand that before you were fully plant-based, you were, you were vegan for several years. Yes. Tell us about your journey. Sure. So I had been, you know, you call it midlife crisis or call it, you know, wanting to do something else. I wanted to go to a meditation course and I finally picked out one, you know, after doing some research in Google that this is the one I want to go to. So this was a 10-day silent retreat. Wow. And I told this to my wife and, you know, at this time our kids are 9 and 10 or... And I said, no, not yet. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> not going out because 10 days I can't even call him if I have any issues. Because he's not going to talk to you. Right, yeah, right. Not <laughs> so this Can is... you text on a silent retreat? You, you no. put away your phone in a locker. Oh, wow. You right. get it 10 days later. <laughs> yes, so you have to put away all communication with the outside world. You can't even bring any book with you. Wow. So the following year, in August of 2012... I got a chance to go. So, you know, at that time, I didn't think much of it. I just wanted something to maybe, you know, help with stress, maybe anxiety, just kind of feeling a little bit better. Before I went to the retreat, I was an omnivore. I was eating everything. I had stopped eating beef, but I was still eating fish and chicken. But when I came back from the retreat, something clicked. And one of the things they said is everything that we respond to in our world is temporary sensations. So why do we want to harm another living creature for, you know, just the temporary sensation of it tasting good? 
And it's literally, it's less than a second that the food is on your tongue, right. that you actually taste it. Yeah. And so just something just clicked. And when I came back from this retreat, I had, you know, become vegetarian. But I didn't tell her, you know, sometimes you get real excited. You're kind of, you know, thinking, okay, this is the new me. Then life happens and mm -hmm. you kind of revert back to your old habits. Mm -hmm. But after, you know, a few weeks, we had gone out to a restaurant a couple of times. And instead of ordering, you know, uh, salmon or shrimp or something, I was getting something that was vegetarian. So she brought it up with me. says, I'm noticing <laughs> that you didn't get that, that I told her. I'm not going to eat that way again. So this is when we, so I became vegetarian in August of 2012. Mm -hmm. And then we started doing research that if we're really doing this for compassion, that there is more cruelty in the dairy industry than there is in the livestock or meat industry. Mm -hmm. So if we're really doing this from a non-harming, non-violent standpoint, we need to go all the way. So he became vegetarian in August and then the universe just kept sending me vegan and plant-based patients. Oh, really? And at first, it kind of ignored it, said, good for you. <laughs> you know, nobody wants to change. Mm -hmm. uh, good that your diabetes is better and good mm -hmm. that you're off your asthma inhalers. Well, I don't have those problems anyways, right? So I don't need to do anything about it. Um, but it just kept happening. Um, and he was going through um, reflections as well, and he had made some kind of a comment saying that all these years, if you've been vegetarian for non-violence and compassion reasons, shouldn't, be, shouldn't you be a vegan instead? <laughs> and then I was like, oh yeah, when the kids go off to college, maybe I'll become a vegan then. But since the patients started coming, they started educating me. Um, finally, I started asking them. First, I wasn't even ready to ask them, what made you go vegan, right? Mm -hmm. Because I wasn't ready. So when I started getting curious and started asking them, they started telling me about the ethical aspects, the health aspects, and the environmental aspects. And then we started doing our own research. And then we said, okay, January 1st, let's try. Let's try transitioning towards a vegan diet. That May of 2013, I was going to turn 40. So we said, okay, we'll try, and then by May, if things are going well, for my 40th birthday, I'll become a vegan. <laughs> but then, during January, things were going so well. Um, it wasn't hard. We were feeling better. We were doing the 21-day kickstart and other things and getting emails every day about stuff and then still finding out even more stuff about dairy and other things to where we both kind of said, um, let's not wait that long. I don't want to wait till May. So February 1st, 2013 is our official vegan anniversary. Oh, right. So we celebrate our marriage anniversary and our vegan anniversary. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Congratulations. Well, that's great. Thank you. Thank you. I'll so, tell you the three things that improved for me. Uh-huh. My migraines went away. Oh, wow. Um, I have not had a migraine since I've been vegan. Um, two, my menstrual cramps went away. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, three, my allergies got better, and I got, got off of nasal spray. I still have to take Zyrtec. They didn't get all the way better. So I still take my Zyrtec at bedtime, but I no longer take Flonase nasal spray that I had had to take for a decade. Mm -hmm. I was able to get off of that. And actually, my fibrocystic disease of breast got better as well. Yeah. Because so much of this is hormonally exactly. related. Exactly. And I didn't know it was hormonally related. Right. And, 
a lot of hormones in the milk and dairy mm -hmm. yeah. things, Absolutely. right? Um, my skin. Mm -hmm. My skin cleared up. I've had this issue with rosacea for yeah. a long time, wow. and, and that is no longer an issue. And then I started getting asked to give talks. It became, well, if I'm preaching this, mm -hmm. then I need to practice it. So I mean, we sort of transitioned from, you know, from a vegan diet, which was not high in processed foods, but you know, we were eating some mock meats, we were eating uh, occasional you know, cookies and th those desserts. sort of things, desserts and that sort of thing. And so in terms of, you know, I didn't feel a great big change going from a you know, mostly vegetarian, occasional fish mm -hmm. and chicken diet to a vegetarian diet or even to a vegan diet. Mm -hmm. But when we switched from, a, from that sort of eating pattern to a whole foods eating diet, I stopped having headaches. My allergies haven't gotten all the way better they've gotten significantly better. I used to have take Clarinex, which is a lot stronger than Claritin. So at one point I was doing Claritin, then I added the nasal inhaler, then I added Clarinex, and then I started you know, taking things away. So the Clarinex is gone, nasal inhaler is gone, it just, I just have to take Claritin now. So things are slowly you know, getting better in that sense. What a great conversation with Dr. Sunish and Bandana Chawla. Okay, so let's move on to Dr. Rizwan Bukhari. Now, he has been practicing vascular surgery for over 20 years. His primary hospital is Baylor Sunnyvale, where he formerly was the chief of surgery. Currently, he serves on the board of directors and board of managers and is chief of staff. He's the owner of the North Texas Vascular Center, where he offers diagnostic services and minimally invasive outpatient procedures, largely related to amputation prevention and limb salvage. Dr. Riz will explain the difference between a cardiologist and a vascular surgeon. He now offers nutrition counseling, and he tells us about his personal journey towards becoming plant-based. What is a vascular surgeon? Well, a vascular surgeon is a, uh, a surgeon who operates on the blood vessels of the body, uh, everywhere except the heart and in the brain. So typically, it's uh, carotid artery operations or treatments, uh, the, the aorta, the uh, iliac vessels in the pelvis, the leg blood vessels, and for, for different reasons. Uh, at, at, but the vascular surgeon doesn't just operate on them, he might, might do medical management or observation of problems with these arteries. Atherosclerosis is one of the leading causes of death in the United States. Atherosclerosis of the heart is called cardiovascular disease, and so I treat that same atherosclerosis. If the plaque builds up in the arteries that supply different parts of the body, uh, then get blocked off and those parts of the body then have problems. And so by treating them, I try to improve the situation. Mm -hmm. A treatment might be an operation. Um, it might be a stent or an angioplasty, or it might be medical therapy and, and observation. Who is the typical patient that comes to see you? By the time I get somebody sent to me, they have very advanced problems. They've either got gangrene or, they've got a, uh, or they might have had some strokes uh, or, or they've got severe symptomatic disease of the legs like pain at rest or pain when they walk. These patients are typically uh, in their late 50s, 60s, and 70s. Interestingly, I've, I've seen a trend over the 20 years I've been in practice where the patients are starting to become a little bit younger. And, and that's a sign that this uh, disease, atherosclerosis, is uh, starting at an earlier age and progressing more rapidly. Therefore, we're seeing it in younger people. How is it that this disease is seen at that age? The main reason is our American diet. 
what we call the standard American or Western diet. As it's gotten worse, according to many people's estimates, it's causing more and more problems with, uh, with atherosclerosis. The, the West, standard Western diet is high in fat, high in processed foods, uh, and very low in the healthy foods. So therefore, these processed foods and oils and cholesterol in our diet are leading to atherosclerosis in general and more advanced atherosclerosis in younger people now. What makes you different than a cardiologist? A cardiologist is someone who works on the heart. There are two specialists who work on the heart, the cardiologist and the cardiac surgeon. One primarily does the medical and interventional treatments, and the other one, the surgeon, does the surgical treatments. Whereas as a vascular surgeon, I do both the medical and interventional treatments and the surgical treatments of the arteries of the rest of the body. It's a highly specialized craft in many ways, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's so special that many people don't even know about it. Uh, you know, the general public doesn't. Uh, I mean, most, most physicians do, and that's how I get you know, patients sent to me when they recognize that there's a problem. What do you tell your patients that are younger than the typical age group that you treat? What do you say to them? Well, the, the main message I get to them is to eat better. Most atherosclerotic disease is lifestyle and nutrition related. Uh, some of it is related to tobacco, uh, but the, uh, in my opinion, tobacco is just one risk factor. Interestingly enough, uh, every year since 1964, which is when the Surgeon General issued a warning and put a warning on the, on the package of cigarettes about the dangers of cigarette smoking, the incidence of smoking has gone down every year since 1964. So we have the lowest incidence of smoking in the United States since 1964, but despite that, the incidence of atherosclerosis is still rising. Mm. So when people uh, blame smoking as the main cause of atherosclerosis, that's not correct. Mm. I think the main cause of atherosclerosis is our standard American diet, which has gotten worse over the last 50 years. Here as a vascular surgeon, you see the side effects or the consequences of eating a standard American diet. And, um, and at the same time, you see the solution, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I feel very alone because uh, I, I, although I've heard that there might be one or two other vascular surgeons who are plant-based, I've never met one or, or spoken to one. How did you become plant-based? You already know the story, but I'll tell everybody else out there. Uh, you dragged me to see a guy named Rip Esselstyn about five or six years ago when he was doing his uh, Engine 2 cookbook tour. I found it to be very intriguing. We went to see him at a Whole Foods uh, here in Dallas where, uh, where we live. From that, uh, the next thing I did was watch the Forks Over Knives uh, documentary. At that point, it caused a little bit of uh, turmoil in my mind because this disease, atherosclerosis, which I'm an, you know, considered to be an expert in treating, which I've always thought was irreversible, I was being told that through a healthy whole food plant-based diet, uh, you can actually stop the disease, uh, prevent further uh, uh, progression of the disease, uh, and you might even be able to reverse the disease. And that's something that uh, I had not been taught. Uh, Interestingly enough, and and so I started delving further into things. Um, I read the China study, uh, and I've done more reading since. Uh, One of my favorite books is How Not to Die by Dr. Michael Greger, and then a lot of work by Dr. Dean Ornish, who's specifically done work on atherosclerosis and reversing heart disease. Uh, work by Dr. Esselstyn, uh, uh, who has reversed heart disease as well. When I went plant-based, then I thought, of course, I have a duty to educate my patients about it as well. Why would I keep it from them? Talking to my patients about their nutrition is a part of, uh, I talk about risk factors to all my patients. And so nutrition is typically a risk factor. Not only do I tell them to uh, stop smoking, but I do lifestyle 
and risk factor management, and part of that is, is nutritional counseling. How receptive are they? You know, it varies. It's just like everybody else. Uh, you kind of have to be ready to receive the message. But I will say that many have never heard the message before. Mm. Okay, so at least every one of them gets the message now. Mm-hmm. And then the ones who, the, the light clicks, mm-hmm. uh, and then they're more open to it, and then we, we proceed. But they, they get it from me over and over again, because I, I think that uh, people give doctors a lot of credibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why also it's upsetting too to me that doctors who've never educated themselves about nutrition, and uh, as, as a caveat, doctors don't get nutritional training in medical school or residency or fellowship. They get training in physiology. We know what calories are. We know what proteins are. We know what carbohydrates are. We know what uh, fats are. But we don't get nutritional training on the macro level. We get micronutrient training. Uh, 80% of our chronic illnesses out there are lifestyle related and that's primarily nutritionally related mm-hmm. and so if we can change people's nutrition we can affect those the 80 percent of our chronic diseases there's uh, something called the american college of lifestyle medicine which was established uh, i think maybe in 2003 or 2004 they look at predominantly a whole food plant-based diet but they also talk about good getting good physical activity adequate sleep stress management, reducing risky behaviors like smoking and drinking, uh, promoting emotional well-being and connectivity. Uh, I like the approach this American College of Lifestyle Medicine uh, is mm-hmm. taking, and they are growing fast. Okay, so they, they fortunately, they offer a certification uh, in lifestyle medicine. And so we kind of came to these conclusions separately before we even knew there was an ACLM. Mm-hmm. And we came to that conclusion a lot through our Blue Zones understanding. Uh, and the lessons, uh, the, the life lessons that the Blue Zones taught us. And so many of these concepts are identical. The, the Blue Zone concepts are uh, relatively the same as uh, the ACLM uh, stuff that we talked, that I just talked yeah. about. What would be a quick uh, description of what whole food plant-based means? So I think that means that you're eating the, the food in its uh, closest to its natural state. Uh, and that would be whole grains, legumes, fruits, vegetables, nuts, uh, minimally processed. If you had to recommend one book or one film, what would that be? So the first thing I would tell them to do is to watch Forks Over Knives. I think that's one of the things that's helped uh, start this more recent revolution. Uh, It came out in 2011, but it's still relevant today. Uh, And so that's what I would say to watch. That's a good and easy way to just initiate your education. Uh, and then the first, the first book I re- usually recommend to people is uh, How Not to Die by Dr. Michael Greger. I think it's extremely well written, it's well organized, and it's understandable, uh, and it speaks to people. Okay, great conversation with Dr. Riz. All right, finally, let's meet Dr. Nancy Erickson. She's currently an associate professor in maternal fetal medicine at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. During our conversation, Dr. Erickson shared with us the common ailments and conditions that she sees in her patients. Her goal is to provide lifestyle medicine counseling to help her patients improve their conditions. And she also shares with us her personal story of improving her menopausal symptoms through a plant-based diet. Finally, Dr. Erickson will be one of the speakers at the annual American College of Lifestyle Medicine Lifestyle Conference. So make sure to listen to the full podcast with her. But I look at women's health in a bigger picture. Mm-hmm. which is different than most OBGYNs because most OBGYNs hone in on, you know, breast and pelvis. And I look at it from, okay, the number one disease that OBGYNs see is obesity. And from there, women are most likely die from heart disease, just as are men. And number two is cancer. 
So let's talk about what you specialize in as an OB-GYN. What I do is I specialize in pregnancy, in fact, high-risk pregnancies. So I see patients, I do diagnostic ultrasound, amniocentesis, prenatal diagnosis, and consultations, both outpatient, inpatient, um, in the Texas Medical Center. For women who have complications, that could range anywhere from, you know, the garden variety, hypertension, diabetes, Mm -hmm. um, preterm labor, premature rupture of membranes to people with congenital heart disease, strokes, heart attacks, all kinds of complications that occur just during pregnancy. And out of those, what are the most common problems that you see? So I get a lot of consultations um, for uh, obesity. I get a lot for high blood pressure and diabetes. Those are the most common ones. In fact, obesity is the most common problem or disease that OB-GYN see currently. I incorporate lifestyle uh, counseling into those consultations because Studies have shown that if you change your lifestyle, you can reverse those diseases such as obesity, high blood pressure, diabetes, risk for coronary artery disease, and such. Mm -hmm. And what are some of those lifestyle modifications that you recommend to your patients who may have, like you said, obesity or high blood pressure, diabetes? Well, I, I try and keep it simple. And I just tell them, I said, pregnancy is going to make you tired. And the thing that's going to help you with that is fiber and plants. So if you stress eating plants, you're going to find that you're going to have more energy because you're going to get not only the calories, you're going to get all the phytonutrients and antioxidants, which um, help boost your metabolism and increase your energy. Mm -hmm. um, and it can also decrease the risk for complications uh, during the pregnancy, and it can decrease the uh, excessive weight gain. There are, there are uh, recommendations about how much weight women should gain based on what their BMI is. And most women, even if they have a normal BMI, typically gain too much weight. And so when possible, if they're open, I discuss um, moving towards a whole food plant-based diet. What sorts of foods are we talking about? Well, vegetables, fruit, um, whole grains, uh, beans, legumes, nuts, and seeds. That's, that's primarily what compromise a whole food plant-based diet. How likely are your patients to actually adopt such a diet when they are already pregnant and say are dealing with some of these health problems? That will depend. I mean, I bump up against all kinds of um, resistance, sometimes from their own general OBGYN who's referred the patient. A lot of them are not aware of um, a lot of the research on the benefits of a whole food plant-based diet. And a lot of these women will say, yeah, I've heard things like this, because I'll ask them, have you heard of the movie Forks Over Knives? And some will say, yeah, I just watched that not too long ago. I have a cousin or some family member who said I should watch it. And I said, well, that's kind of the lifestyle I'm talking about that not only help you now during the pregnancy, will help you in the future as far as trying to avoid a lot of the complications due to obesity and some of these uh, medical problems or comorbidities that you may have. But oftentimes they tell me, you know, if they're the sole cook in the family and there's a lot of resistance from their husband or partner, they may not feel comfortable implementing some of those changes because of the taste of other family members, either children or husband. The ones that adhere to it are the ones that typically either don't need to go on medication, such as insulin during the pregnancy, or if they are on insulin already, uh, don't need to go up as much and tend to have better control of their blood sugars, which lowers the risk of many complications due to diabetes during the pregnancy. I actually found it interesting that you said in your recent lecture that the diet a mother consumes during her pregnancy actually has been shown to influence gene expression in her unborn child. That's correct. 
So I came across some very interesting research. One uh, was just, well, the study involved looking at the miscarriages of women and looking at the main artery that comes out of the heart, which is called the aorta. And they looked, they correlated um, fatty streaks in the aorta with women who ate the most cholesterol, which is exclusively found in animal products such as meat, dairy, eggs, fish, that kind of thing. Before that, they thought that fatty streaks only started happening during childhood or late teenage years. And now we're finding that what you eat during your pregnancy actually can cause the, the beginnings of atherosclerosis, which is hardening of the arteries, even mm-hmm. as a fetus. And then also the standard American diet, especially processed foods and things like that, um, alter the genes, which this is a field called epigenetics, which studies the environmental impact of uh, what we eat, toxins we're exposed to, et cetera, and the impact on the expression of our genes. In other words, the food we eat can either turn on or turn off genes, and based on that, can determine how that future health of the baby. So they've done studies on women uh, who are obese. They're not on a special diet. They're just eating the standard American diet, and they can show that uh, just by being obese and eating the typical American foods, that they increase the risk for their child Um, having obesity later in life, having metabolic syndrome, diabetes, and even heart disease. In one study, they showed that women who had high blood pressure um, increased the risk for their adult children at age 40 having high blood pressure. Wow. And some of this, you know, some people might say, well, that's because probably they're just feeding their kids the same thing they're eating. So therefore, of course, they're going to have increased risk for this. What about the onset of gestational diabetes and preeclampsia during pregnancy? Obese women have a much higher risk for both gestational diabetes and preeclampsia, both of which, um, more more so preeclampsia, but occurs early in the pregnancy, may lead to a preterm delivery. Obese women, they have a lot of different complications. One is an increased risk for birth defects, especially congenital heart defects, and have an increased risk for having a large baby, which might increase their risk for having a cesarean delivery. Mm-hmm. And women with a BMI over 40 have an increased risk for stillbirth. So we do more monitoring late in the third trimester for those women. And mm-hmm. some of them are shocked to hear that, that their baby could die just because they're obese. And also women who get gestational diabetes have about a 50% chance of getting diabetes in between pregnancies or type 2 diabetes on the order of about 50% within the next five years. So one of the things I try and share with them is that one is you need to be tested again for diabetes. And um, if if you bring your weight down in between pregnancies, you can lower your risk for those happening in the subsequent pregnancy. Dr. Erickson, how did you begin to incorporate nutrition counseling for your patients? Well, I started, this is actually my own personal journey. About 10 years ago, I started looking into what is the optimal diet. As I was approaching menopause, I wanted to see what could I take to help lower my risk for a lot of problems. I had a mother who had breast cancer and Anne had breast cancer. Mm-hmm. So that was a concern. But I also knew from recent literature that heart uh, hormonal replacement therapy actually increased your risk for breast cancer. And prior to that study coming out, I planned on taking it when I went through menopause to lower some of the symptoms. I came across the movie Forks Over Knives. I watched it. And because of all the study I'd done up to then, it just kind of made perfect sense. The science backed up what I was already suspecting, which is plants are healthy Mm -hmm. and actually prevent and reverse um, many diseases. So I had 
actually just gone through menopause, I was having horrible hot flushes. Within a week, I went whole food plant-based. Within two weeks of me doing so, all my hot flushes went away. Wow. It's interesting because the, the studies show that hot flushes last for an average of 10 years. And mm-hmm. I knew that. And I was like, there's no way I could take this for 10 years. <laughs> and so I found it to be very powerful. And uh, as a result, I've wanted to share that with my patients. There you have it for great lifestyle medicine physicians in Texas who educate their patients about the benefits of incorporating these tenants into their lives so that they can prevent halt and even reverse disease. I hope you enjoyed this format. Let me know what you think. And as always, thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Plant-Based DFW podcast show. If you like our content, please like, share, and leave a review. Our goal is to provide quality episodes to help support the community.